Hi, I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf and welcome to my podcast, Cleaning Up the Mental Mess. In today's podcast, I have the honor and privilege of interviewing an incredible person, Dr. Vivek H. Murphy, MD, who served as the 19th Surgeon General of the United States and is currently serving as the 21st Surgeon General of the United States. Known as America's doctor, he called the nation's attention to critical public health issues, including the opioid epidemic, e-cigarettes, and emotional health and well-being. As the Vice Admiral of the U.S. Public Health Service Commission Corps, he oversaw a uniform service of 6,600 officers dedicated to safeguarding the health of the nation. Prior to serving in government, he conducted research on vaccine development and clinical trial participation and founded several organizations focused on HIV-AIDS education, rural health physician advocacy, and clinical trial optimization. He received his bachelor's degree from Harvard and his MD and MBA from Yale, and he completed his internal medicine residency at Brigham and Women's Health Hospital and Harvard Medical School, where he later joined the faculty. Dr. Murphy resides in Washington, D.C. with his wife, Dr. Alice Chen, and their two children. We discuss how Dr. Vivek Murthy has released a framework highlighting the critical role that workplaces play in promoting the health and well-being of workers and communities. This is the Surgeon General's framework for mental health and well-being in the workplace highlights five essential things needed to help organizations develop policies and practices that best support the mental health and well-being of workers. And these five essentials which we discuss in today's podcast include providing protection from harm, creating the opportunity for connection and community, enabling work-life harmony, gaining purpose at work, and the opportunity for growth in the workplace. We have a general discussion about mental health in the workplace and in the world today and what isolation has done as well. Join me in today's incredible podcast. Life can be hard and it's easy to feel stressed, anxious and out of control. What if there was a way to take back control? What if there was a practical way to detox your brain? This is now possible with NeuroCycle, the first ever scientifically tested brain detox app shown to help reduce an anxiety and depression by up to 81%. Users are guided through a variation of audio and video, brain exercises and mind management lessons every day. I'm excited to share some of the latest features in the app, including guides for children and parents, detailed feedback and recommendations, written guides through days 22 through 63 of the NeuroCycle, and an easy way to track your progress. There are over 500,000 NeuroCycle users worldwide, and the app has helped change thousands of lives, including people trying to find purpose in life, overcoming fear, better sleep, improved relationships, managing intrusive thoughts, depression and anxiety, and so much more. NeuroCycle is for everybody. No matter who you are, what you've been through, or what you do, you have an incredible mind and brain that is always on and needs to be managed so that you can live your best both mentally and physically. This app is designed for individuals, couples, families, businesses or corporations. For everyone, everywhere. Join us by committing just a few minutes a day and see how your life is transformed. In just 63 days, you will have begun rewiring your brain for a happier and healthier life. Download the NeuroCycle app today and start changing your life one thought at a time. Just look for NeuroCycle on the iTunes App Store or Google Play or visit NeuroCycle.app. The link and more information will be in the show notes. Dr. Vivek Mercy, I have been looking so forward to interviewing you. Thank you so much for what you do, for being the most amazing person that you are and for agreeing to come on my podcast. Well, thank you so much. That is so kind of you to say. I'm really excited that we're having this conversation. 
Oh, so am I. I mean, I'm just so impressed. The 19th and the 21st U.S. Surgeon General. That's quite a quite a feat, and and, and I mean, there couldn't be a better person to do the orcharding to do this. So you're amazing at this. So do you mind just sharing a little bit about with my audience, just about your background? I mean, most people do know, I'm sure, but it's so impressive that I really want to just boast a little bit about you. So, Oh, well, that's very kind of you. I mean, the, you know, I grew up in Miami, Florida. I was the child of two incredible parents who, uh, you know, came to this country without a whole lot of resources, but gave me so much in terms of unconditional love and support and who really led by example in teaching me about values and the importance of giving back to your community and the importance of taking care of your family and your friends and the importance of service. And, you know, growing up, they actually are the ones who inspired me to go into medicine, to become a doctor. They ran a medical practice in Miami when I was growing up, and I spent a lot of time there as a kid. And, you know, I was small. I didn't understand a ton about the science that was taking place in the exam room, but as I could see the human interactions that were taking place. I saw people coming in stressed and worried and leaving feeling more at ease, knowing that they had a partner in their healing process. And that's what inspired me to go into medicine, ultimately. I didn't have any five or 10 year plans, though. I was never very good at sort of figuring out and mapping out the whole journey. I just really focused on doing what felt meaningful and what felt inspiring next. And that led me on quite a a windy path, you know, to building some nonprofit organizations focused on HIV, on training community health workers in India, ultimately building a technology company focused on making clinical trials better and faster and more efficient so that people can get treatments more effectively, and also led me ultimately to doing advocacy work where I tried to bring community members and in, in, in medicine together to advocate for policies that would make healthcare more affordable. And somehow all of that led to me working in, in, in government. That was never part of my plan to come to government, but you know sometimes the universe has plans for you. And I, I feel very blessed to have had the opportunity to serve. I've not only had the privilege of you know, building initiatives around mental health and, and the opioid crisis and other issues that mattered. But I have, just as I have in medicine, learned so much from the people that I've had the privilege of serving. And I think so much on the conversations I've had with people around the country, young people, older folks, people in between, and they continue to guide me in how I think about my work and how I think about life. So yeah, I'm just on this journey, you know, like many of us to figure out how to take this moment uh, of crisis, this moment where we've been through two and a half years of a pandemic and use it to build a life going forward that is richer, that is more informed by what we've learned, that's more centered around people and relationships, and ultimately that leads to better mental health and well-being for all of us. Mm. You, you're speaking words that are so close to my heart because it's really, the, as you say, the community, the deep, meaningful relationships, these are so vitally important to us as a humanity, as in the community and our mental health. You know, what really struck me when I was looking through, just following you and, and the kind of comments that you make and your feedback you give and, and your book, you said something, and I'm going to actually quote if you, if you, if you, don't, if you don't mind. You said, my medical education did not prepare me to recognize the impact of social connection on health, and it certainly didn't give me the tools to help my patients who were struggling with loneliness. Instead, my training had been focused um, entirely on the physical body. That was your background, and that got, grabbed my attention because I train a lot of physicians in mental health, and this is always a comment I'm getting back that you know, you're dealing with a whole person, and, and your approach and your parents' approach was very much dealing with a whole person. And I see you translating this into the work that you're doing as a surgeon general. When you 
and you're nine, then you're number nineteen, and now number twenty-one. You're continuing this philosophy of really looking at the whole, the whole person. So, how did you make that shift from your medical training, the recognition that there wasn't enough focus on the whole human, and the link between our psychoneurobiology, you know, the mind-brain-body connection, and how we live our lives, impacting how we function physically? Well, you know, it was something that I started thinking about more and more because of my own life experience. You know, as a child, I really struggled at times with loneliness and isolation and with my own mental health. And and that had an impact on how I showed up in school and how I showed up for my family. And when I became a doctor myself, I also came to see that we could come up with the best treatment plans for patients and lay out all the medications they had to take and follow-up appointments they needed to do after they left the hospital. But if they were really struggling with depression and with anxiety, it was harder for them to take those medicines, to follow up with those appointments, to stay engaged with their health. And over time, I both came to see through my own experience with patients and also through looking at the data that was starting to pile up, that there is no stark separation between our mind and our bodies. What happens in one dimension deeply affects the other. And accepting that and understanding that, to me, was the key part of figuring out how to enhance overall health because our mental health is health. And when we separate them, I think we do a disservice to patients and it's just not true to our our life experience. Um, So I think that's part of what this journey is about. I know for many of us and for many societies, which is to stop thinking about mental health as something that's less important, something that's separate and more to see it as an extraordinary source uh, of power and health and well-being that is part and parcel of our overall health. I love that. I love that answer and I agree with you so much. You know, we, without our mind driving our physical brain and body, we wouldn't be here anyway. So we, we really do need to be paying more attention actually to the mind because the body just does what the mind tells it to do. So I, I was very excited when I read that in your, in your work. I'm sure it will come as no surprise to you that to think well and manage your mental health, your brain needs proper nourishment. But many of us don't have the time to take multiple different products all day long for better brain and body health, more energy and optimized immune systems. This is why I love Athletic Greens. It has just what I need in one drink. Best of all, it doesn't taste like it's super healthy, honestly. Athletic Greens has a mild tropical taste that I actually look forward to each morning when I wake up. Even my husband, who can't stand things that taste too green, loves his Athletic Greens in the morning. With one delicious scoop of Athletic Greens, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source, superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. This special blend of ingredients supports your brain, your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and aging. All the things. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com forward slash leaf. Again, that is athleticgreens.com forward slash leaf to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. The link and offer details will be in the show notes. You talk about loneliness that really grabbed your attention. And you talk a little bit about in terms of how we've become quite individualistic as a society and we need to get back to more community approach and that sort of shapes how you're approaching things from what I'm gathering. Could you talk a little bit to how, let's just start with, you know, loneliness coming, loneliness seeming to grow out of this individualistic approach to humanity that we now have as a Western sort of philosophy as opposed to community. Could you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. Well, loneliness is a profound public health challenge that we don't talk about often enough. 
it's a personal experience that many of us have. And when we have it, sometimes we feel like, gosh, something's wrong with us. We feel embarrassed. We feel like maybe we don't have social skills. Maybe worst case that we're even losers. You know, I know many people feel that when they're just staying home at a Friday night and everyone else is out at parties or they think everyone else is out. But the reality is that loneliness is part of the human experience. It's like hunger or thirst. It's a signal our body sends us when we lack something that we need for survival, like hunger, like, you know, food or water. And the truth is that the science and evolution tells very clearly that we need relationships for survival. There's studies of babies that tell us that when kids are deprived of human contact, it has a profound negative impact on their health, on their physical health. But it's true for adults as well. So this is real. But I think building a connected life uh, requires us to do a couple of things. One is to recognize that we are interdependent creatures, that there's no shame in needing other people or depending on other people other people. And unfortunately, in modern society, more broadly, we too often tell people that depending on other people is a source of weakness, that they should strive for complete independence, which means not needing other people, and which ultimately then ends, also ends up meaning not showing that you may need other people like by showing emotion or showing that you don't know the answer to something or showing that you're stressed or worried. And this is just not who how we were designed to be as human beings. So I think the more we embrace our social nature as creatures. And again, that doesn't mean we're all extroverts. A lot of us, myself included, you know, are introverts, but we all need some degree of human connection in our life. And the challenge for now is how do we design our lives and our institutions, including our workplaces, to support human connection? If we do that, then we will not only support mental health and well-being, but we will allow people to show up in workplaces and school and their neighborhoods and communities in ways that they can contribute more and just show up as they're full of selves. I love that. You know, I don't, I'm sure you're familiar with the study that was done at King's University and Harvard in, in Zimbabwe, which is where I was born, Zimbabwe, Africa. Uh. And there's a bench therapy. I, did, I don't know if you've ever heard of the concept and then how they did that study and how that was basically with the granny on the log, just listening and the community. You know, so when, when I see that as it was actually shown to be one of the most successful ways of managing mental health, getting a community focus, yet it was just put aside, you know, and it hasn't had the impact that, I, that it should have. So that when you speak about these things, now it makes me really excited because maybe the time is coming where we really can bring this community back to our mental health and our physical health because they're both they're also interrelated well absolutely and there's something very powerful in what you just mentioned about that study which is that it underscores the idea that we all have the power to be healers our relationships do heal they help us deal with adversity and they buffer stress and they also lift up our moments of joy and excitement but you don't need to have a phd or an md or an rn behind your name in order to be a healer in that way it is your willingness to reach out to someone whether they're a stranger and just to say hello or to express kindness to them in a difficult moment whether it's reaching out to an old friend or being there for a family member these are all actions we can take with the power for compassion and kindness that we have that can help contribute to the healing that the world needs so deeply right now. So I know that when we look at the scale of the challenge that we face with mental health, when we think about the people in our lives who are struggling, sometimes I can feel overwhelming. I feel like, gosh, how am I as one person able to contribute to that? But I'll tell you time after time after time, when I talk to people around the country about their struggles with mental health, they'll often talk about one person who showed up in their life and made a big difference. Yesterday, I was at a university talking with student athletes 
There's one student who was having an incredibly difficult time and, in fact, was considering taking his own life. That's how distraught he was. And it was one person, a coach, who showed up who said to him, there's help available. We're here to support you. We have your back. And that person connected him to help and ultimately made sure that he was alive today or to, you know, to actually have these conversations with us and share his experiences. So again, this is not, was not somebody who had a medical degree. It was just somebody who chose to take a moment to listen, to be kind and to offer support. And that made all the difference in the world. And that what you've just outlined is the most natural instinct we as humans have is to reach out and listen and support mm-hmm. each other. But what I don't know if you said, but over the last sort of 38, 40 years, we've moved away from a very much of that, this kind of community approach into very much a neuroreductionistic, put everything in a label and a box. And it's, it's, it's taken the individual, it's made everything about the individual as opposed to the community. And that, this, we have to go back to the solution of the community as you as you're describing. And, and I love that you, and I just want to really make sure people heard you say that it wasn't that you, you don't have to have a PhD or an MD or an RN behind your name. You have the qualifications just being human to reach out and connect. And that's such a, right. it's such, if, we can, if we can get everyone doing that, which I know is the desire of your heart, and I know it's the desire of my heart in this, in this, uh, I do this podcast, if we can get people to support each other, if we can improve mental and physical health. Instead of thinking it's Absolutely. I love, I love that you approach it like that. You know, coming from Africa, I worked in school three days a week, 24, 25 years in, in during the apartheid, the transition, and, and Mandela came to power. And the biggest thing was just getting people to talk to each other. They, they aren't a one-on, you don't, you don't have a one-on-one therapist per person. You've got to teach people how to live with themselves and live in communities. So I really love the approach that you've been well, well, thank you. You know, this is how we were designed to live. It was in harmony and partnership with each other, in relationship with one another. And we've moved away from that. In many ways, we have a chance to come back to it. And that, that's what I want to underscore here, too, is the journey to live a connected life is not the journey to become somebody we are not. It's a return to who we have been for thousands of years. This is about coming home to who we are and helping other people find that home. And there's one question I would just encourage everybody who's listening to, to ask themselves, which is, is my life centered around people or is it centered around work? And that's a hard question to ask ourselves, but I will be honest, during the pandemic, I asked myself that question and I came back with the, the uncomfortable answer that my life was actually centered around work, even though I really wanted it to be centered around people in my life. Look, I think if you stop 100 people on the street and you ask them, what's most important to you in the world? They will usually list people. Maybe it's their mom or their dad or their spouse or their children or their grandparents. They'll list people. But when you look at where we put the majority of our energy, our time, our focus, a lot of times it's actually not on people. And so for many of us, myself you know, you know, included, this moment of reckoning, this moment of reassessing our lives, you know, as we come to this pandemic, is an opportunity to close that gap and to see, can we truly build lives that are centered around people, around relationships, recognizing that our greatest joy in life comes from the experiences we have with other people, the relationships we build. It's driven by the love that we give and that we receive. That is what gives us joy. And part of the reason I know that is not because I read it in a book, it's because it's what patients have told me time and time again over the years at the end of their lives. 
that when they're looking back on the broad expanse, you know, of everything they've been through over the years, what they talk about is not the degrees that they were awarded or how much money they had in their bank account or how many Instagram followers they have. What they talk about are their relationships in their life, the ones that brought them joy, the ones that broke their heart, the ones where they wanted to spend more time with other people. It is clear that in those final moments of life, when only the most meaningful strands of our experience remain, it is our relationships that rise to the top. And we don't have to wait till the end of our life to realize that and to act on that. We have the power to do that right now. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You just said that so beautifully. It just made me get warm. Oh, I feel your warmth all over me because this is really... A key solution to us solving so many problems that are currently going on in our environment. Because what you're encouraging is for people's natural loving instinct as a human to reach out and help each other. And it's such a natural, almost like a natural thing that we've forgotten how to do. And it's not happening like it should. So I do love that question. And I hope that everyone will ask themselves that question and actually really evaluate not just the instinct of, yes, family, but what are you doing with your time? Are you really focusing around people? That then naturally explodes out into the environment, doesn't it? Because yeah. it starts with the individual. It will start then getting into the workplace and everywhere. That's exactly right. Yeah, when we act, we have a powerful impact on the people around us. That's right. Absolutely. There's also that one study, I'm sure you also heard of it, where they, the oncologist, they it only spends like a few minutes sort of looking at the clipboard and going to the patient's room, just looking at, you know, what's on the board, what's on the little clipboard and then going off. And they, so no people contact and they just, they train them to sit with the patients for seven minutes and not, mm-hmm. not stand at the end of the bed, but actually sit down, hold their hand and say, how are you doing today? Tell me about your family. And just seven minutes of that completely transformed the mental health of those cancer patients. I mean, I'm summarizing a big study that was done, but it just goes to show that, what we need as humans is that connection. Now, you you are all about this, and you actually have launched just a week ago an amazing initiative dealing with mental health in the workplace. And so just make sure that I say it correctly, you've got your, your basic surgeon, your, the U.S. Surgeon General's Framework for Mental Health and Wellbeing in the Workplace. And I am really, really excited about this. There's five essentials. I mean, this is just incredible. Can you talk to that, Dr. Murphy, Murphy because I believe you have actually – taken something that we all know we should naturally be doing, what we've been discussing so far, this instinctive need to connect with others, but you're making this into something that's actually practical, hands-on, how to do this in the workplace, which is so relevant. And it's not a place where people, we focus sufficiently on mental health. 
And from my own experience working in these kind of environments, people will you know, have the green juices, do the yoga, do the meditation, but it's not enough. More is needed. And I think what you've hit on is the more that's needed, I think you hit the key. So I'd love you to talk about that and walk us through what you're going to be doing. Well, absolutely. Well, thank you, Caroline. And, uh, you know, I recently issued a Surgeon General's framework on workplace mental health and well-being because our workplaces have a powerful impact on our mental health. And that could be for the better or for the worse. But when we design our workplaces to support mental health and well-being for workers, two critical things happen. One is workers are better off. They're happier, they're healthier physically and mentally and more fulfilled. But the other thing that happens is that workplaces are better off as well. People's productivity and creativity is better when their mental health is enhanced. Their willingness to stay in a company and their inclination to be retained in the workforce is also greater. So it's a win-win to focus on mental health and well-being in the workplace. And look, in the last couple of years, people have gone through real reckoning and thinking about work. Many people, as a result of the pandemic, are asking what they want out of work, and they're also asking what they're willing to sacrifice for work. And so this is an opportunity for us to really reassess how we create workplaces that truly provide the support for mental health that workers need. And what I've laid out are five essentials that are components that build that foundation for mental health and well-being in the workplace. And they include protection from harm. We all want to go to workplaces where we feel physically and psychologically safe, where we have adequate time to actually rest. Second, we want to work in workplaces that are connected, where people are part of a community. And fostering that social connection doesn't just happen on its own because we have happy hours or company picnics, but there are measures that we can create with a little bit of structure and a little bit at a time that can create opportunities for people to come to know one another, to, and not just as skill sets, but as human beings. And we know now from good data from the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School of Business and from other others that when people are connected in the workplace, they are more productive and they are more creative. The third essential is around work-life harmony. This is a tough one. A lot of us struggle with balancing home life and work life. But what can make it much harder for workers is when they don't have the ability to take time off when they are sick or when their family members are sick, when they don't have flexibility and autonomy at work. And we know that you can't give people 100% autonomy all the time. Sometimes their schedules, they have to be filled. But giving people advance notice of those schedules so they can plan their life is absolutely essential. And we know that, you know, as part of the work-life harmony, that it's important to respect boundaries between work and non-work time. Look, this is tough in this day and age when technology is always connecting us to work, but that means that people never get the rest and replenishment that they need. The fourth essential you know, is around mattering. We know that people want to know that they matter and that their work matters, but a lot of people don't know how their work connects to the mission or they don't feel that all the time. We also know that when people, when workers are not at the table, when they don't have a voice in decision-making, that also sends a signal to them that they don't matter. And the fifth and final essential is around growth. We want to provide people opportunities to grow and develop in the workplace. We want equitable opportunities for career advancement. We need feedback that's provided to people that's honest and constructive for people can get better and better. When people have these five essentials in the workplace, what happens is they have a foundation to grow and to do well. That's not to say that work, you know, is never going to be hard. It's not going to say it mean that, that there's ever adversity, but we can have adversity. We can require, you know, have people working really hard and accomplishing big things, but still provide that foundation for mental health and well-being. And again, when we do that, it's a win for workers and a win for organizations. I love that. Uh, that's it's vital. You know, the well-being 
of a, of a child is based on the well-being of the parent and the well-being of the teacher yeah. is going to influence the well-being of the child and well-being of your leaders in the workplace influence the well-being of the, the workers. So it's that, that link has been so scientifically established, but yes. somehow it hasn't always been, you know, there's been, I think, a lot of siloing in sort of silo things in the way that we handle things. And even mental health, I mean, you know yourself, mental health in the workplace has been a challenge because it's if people say too much, then they're scared they're going to get laid off because they seen as crazy. And, you know, there's a lot of implications there, but only 3% of leaders are talking about their mental health in a way that it's not, it's not normalizing it because every single human, if you're human just by the mere fact that you're a human and alive, life is affecting you and work and pressure and COVID and, you know, all these things that happen to us. So we, we the, the normalizing of people being able to say, hey, I'm not having the greatest day or this is what's going on in my life, this is why I make that openness, I believe, is something that's going to come out of this initiative that you put together, that there's a, people feel safer. And I say that because I've had a couple of people that have actually, I've heard some interviews of people just in, in, in this world of dealing with mental health in the workplace. And some of them have said that they feel companies have almost like imposed these four sort of interactions where you've got to now socialize and you've got to go and do this, you've got to go do that. And it's added to their workload. Yes. So how do we deal with that? Yeah. So how do we deal with not doing like, okay, we've got to do this thing together, but that's one more thing that they've got to do. And if they've got to fill in a form, does it mean that they're going to be laid off because their mind, they're seen as crazy? Those are that have come up in, in my sort of research and talking to people in, in trying to change mental health in the workplace. Could you speak to that? And Yeah, this is really important what you brought up, Caroline. Number one, people need to feel safe talking about these issues in the workplace and safe from two respects. One, they should not have to fear they're going to lose their job or be penalized in terms of promotions. But second, they should also not fear they're going to be socially ostracized because they bring these issues up. And that creating that kind of culture and the policies to protect people, this yeah. is really where leaders come in, right? Because leading by example is important. When you see leaders actually not just saying, hey, we should be open, but being open themselves, that makes a difference. When you have clear policies that protect people against discrimination for disclosure of mental health struggles, that's also uh, important. And that's a problem right now, including the medical profession, right? Yeah. Where there are many doctors in the United States who are scared that if they admit that they need help for regarding their mental health or that they have a history of mental health challenges, they'll somehow lose their license. And that's part of the work we're actually doing to help create, you know, making more rational and safer and fairer policies uh, so that people are not penalized in that respect. But the other thing that's important is around time, because you mentioned, you know, time is a, a premium for everyone. We're all uh, trying to figure out how to eke a few more minutes out of the day uh, often. And telling people, hey, spend another hour here, another hour there doing activities sometimes can actually be stressful, even though they're well-intended. So one of the things we underscore, actually, in this, uh, in, in, the, in the workplace product that, that we're putting out now in the framework is that this is not always about how much time you put in. And there's a parallel here to relationships, right? Strong relationships are not just about how much time you spend with somebody. It's about the quality of the time that you spend with someone. You know, I think about the, you know, my friend in medical school, my classmate's father was hospitalized and needed surgery during our first year of medical school. And we asked her, I remember, during that experience, who was her father's favorite doctor? And she said, oh, it was his surgeon. Of all the doctors who came to see him, the internist, the surgeon, like the many others who came, it was the surgeon. We were surprised. We said, wow, we thought the surgeons are always so busy. They don't have time to spend with patients, et cetera. Yeah. And she said, oh, yeah, no, he didn't have much time. He only came back for five minutes a day after the surgery, you know, to check on my dad. But it was what he did in those five minutes that made such a difference. He didn't stand at the door. He came 
to the bedside. He sat down on the bed next to her father. He looked in his eyes. He held his hand. He listened to what he was saying and responded kindly and empathetically to the question he asked, not about his own agenda. He made that five minutes feel like 30 minutes. And that is one of the powers of being fully present, is that it has the power to stretch time and make this feel like we are having such a profound experience with somebody, even if we're only spending five minutes with them. That is true, actually, when we think about workplace connection as well. And I'll give you a simple example of what we do in our office that has helped to to foster that. In our office, we have something called our Humans of OSG exercise. OSG stands for Office of the Surgeon General. And once a week during our all-staff meetings where everyone comes together, we'll find 10 to 15 minutes where we'll have two people who are you know designated for that meeting who have a conversation with each other. And it's usually one person interviewing the other about their life. It's not about the work they're doing right now, but it's just about their story. Like, what inspired them to do the things they're doing in their life? What formative experiences did they have? What flavors of ice cream do they like? What music do they like? It's about, you know, the, the lighthearted. It's also about the profound. But I'll tell you that in those 10 minutes, we learn so many wonderful and important things about that other person. We come to see them in a different light. They're people who I've worked with for over a year. And I thought I understood, but then after this 10-minute conversation, I realized there are dimensions to them that I'm now appreciating. That's the power of what you can do in 10 minutes. And all of us as an office benefit from that. We feel more deeply connected to that person. And so all of this just to say that this is not always about time and money. This is about the thought that we put into creating the right spaces. It's about adding a light, a bit of structure that allows people to focus on what really matters and to, to have conversations that really, you know, are opening or are, are revealing that bring them closer to one another. So this framework is, has components for everyone. And I, I do want to emphasize that this is not just for folks who are sitting behind a computer. This is for people of all types who are working in factories, who are teaching in schools, who are working behind desks. And it's for small and large organizations. But the bottom line is every worker deserves to have support for their mental health and well-being in the workplace. And even if we don't have a lot of t- money to invest, you know, in this space, if, if your small business is thinking about how do I make this happen? Uh, again, it's not always about the money. It's about the intention and structure that you create for our conversation. It's about leading by example and the, shaping the culture of openness, of support and community. Are you feeling stressed and completely overwhelmed by life right now? Are you having trouble sleeping? Are you finding it hard to get healthy? If this sounds like you, I want to talk to you about magnesium. Magnesium is involved in hundreds of different processes in the body and one of the main things it does is help calm your nervous system so you feel happy, relaxed and sleep well at night. It helps regulate your blood sugar and blood pressure and even plays an important role in helping your body metabolize food for energy. And for women, especially, magnesium plays a huge role in our health. It can help with PMS symptoms, it's important during pregnancy to prevent high blood pressure, and even helps with menopause symptoms. It is also critical for bone density, which women really need to pay attention to as they get older. But it is estimated that up to 80% of women aren't getting enough magnesium. And when you're stressed, you need even more magnesium. That's why I'm excited to tell you about how the folks at BioOptimizers have created an incredible formula called Magnesium Breakthrough that is changing the game for magnesium supplements. Magnesium Breakthrough is my favorite magnesium product. It's the only full-spectrum magnesium supplement with seven unique forms of magnesium plus cofactors and other nutrients to enhance absorption. 
And this month, BioOptimizers are including free bottles of their full line of digestive health products on select orders which while supplies last. That means you are getting free products to try that will support your digestive system. Having an optimized digestive system means less energy trying to digest foods and absorbing more nutrients from the foods you eat. This is especially for available at magbreakthrough.com forward slash Dr. Leaf. Just visit magbreakthrough.com forward slash Dr. Leaf and enter the code Dr. Leaf 10 for 10% off any order. The link and details will be in the show notes. Oh, that's brilliant. It's so beautifully said. And it goes to that oncology research that I was mentioning earlier on the seven minutes. But there's a key thing here. I mean, it's almost like a five minutes of quality time, just listening and connecting and just hearing that person's story. It, it revolutionizes the whole environment that you work in because the person fulfills all those obligations. So, you know, you're coming up with something so simple and so practical. It's almost like, can you find five to 10 minutes in your day just to connect and then formally as a company work in this time frame? I went to a very interesting um, event recently called the Influencers Dinner. And what they do is you don't know knows each other. And you, it's 12 people. And you, just the person who invited us knows, and you're not allowed to say your last name or anything about what you do. So you, for the first 30 minutes, you make dinner together. So you collaboratively have dinner together. And then you just talk about, you ask each other everything except last name and what oh. you do. And so that forces you to talk about family. And you know, the, a bond was set up. So by the time we sat down to actually eat dinner, we, we actually all revealed who we were and what we did. There was a camaraderie. There was a deep connection. It was so much better than other, the other way around where you immediately dive in. Who are you? What do you do? It, all of that was removed and the human humanity was connected first. And then, you know, it was just very interesting to emphasize the kind of thing that you're talking about. And yes, I know the workplace, people kind of know each other, but not everyone does. Maybe they could have little informal gatherings. I don't know. I'm just throwing some ideas out there because I, I just had this experience myself and it was it was fascinating, absolutely fascinating. That what a beautiful experience that you just described, and you're right because it gets to the fact that like for so many in society we tell people our identity is our job a lot of times, but we are so much richer than the job title that we have. But in workplaces also a lot of times the way we know people is their role or their skill set. Yeah. So we might think, well, that's that's Mary who's who's incredible at scheduling, or that's John who's in, great at pricing strategy, or that's uh, you know Jennifer who like is incredible with the Excel spreadsheets. But but who are they beyond that? And then the truth is that it's not to say that everyone has to reveal every part of their identity at work or share their deepest and darkest secrets, but it is to say that. I think people do want to be known and appreciated as human beings and not just as skill sets and functions. And we meet that human need when we create opportunities for people to be themselves and to show up as themselves and to be known by others. So what you that's so well said as well. So what you're proposing, if I'm understanding you correctly, is it does this is not some hugely expensive thing that companies have to invest in. This is a philosophy really, of just tuning, being, taking five to 10 minutes and finding ways within your organization to connect with each other and really get to know the person as opposed to just the, as you said, the person behind the spreadsheet. But who are they? Who is the person behind the spreadsheet? What do they do? That, that's exactly right. We can foster social connection. We can create a culture where people feel supported and seen. We can create a culture where mental health is something that we can talk honestly about. And we can do that without a lot of capital investment without a lot of money. 
Now, there are places where money is helpful, you know, when it comes to making sure, again, people have you know, paid leave, when it comes to making sure that they have a living wage, making sure they have the kind of health insurance coverage that provides mental health care. Those are places where, yes, financial investment is, is important. But here's the thing to remember even there, that the returns are also significant that when we support people with their mental health and well-being, they return so much in terms of productivity and creativity. They're more likely to stay in an organization at a time where we know turnover costs are very high, you know, across verticals. And they also do a lot in terms of contributing to the broader culture. Happier workers make the workers around them happier. They weave an influence on others. Whereas if you are unhappy at work, that also can impact and influence the people around you. The bottom line is that this is a moment for us to recenter ourselves around how to design workplaces that support mental health and well-being. The pandemic, I think, has increased the urgency for us to do so. And we see that right now 81% of workers are saying that they want a workplace that supports mental health. And we know that around a similar percent, 84%, in fact, of workers are saying that there's some aspect of their workplace that has had a negative impact on their mental health. And so if we put this data like, you know, you know, it, you know, into our heads, we also understand that this is a moment of urgency. It's also an opportunity for change. And we can come out of this, I think, even better in terms of the strength of our workplaces and the health of our workers than we were before the pandemic. Because again, the challenges in the workplace that exist right now, they predated the pandemic, many of them. But uh, we have a chance again to do better. I'm so happy that you where you are and doing what you're doing because I'm sure you've seen the federal data that came out between 96 and 2014 showing that people are dying 8 to 25 years younger from preventable lifestyle diseases. And it's, it's lifestyle and work is lifestyle. And you only get yeah. our children, you know, our children are the future workforce. So if, if, if a parent is not able to manage their own mental health, you know, that's the model they're setting up for their children. You know, today, I, mean, I, I write lots of books and I'm just re- about to release a book next year on how to help parents help their children with their mental health. Uh. Yeah, just to, understand, to get this, this safe conversation going in the workplace, we've got to get that safe conversation going at home. So if you think of it, if a parent's so stressed in the workplace, how are they going to parent that their well-being is going to have a negative impact, their negative well-being is going to have a negative impact on their child's well-being? So what you're doing is so important because in this discussion we're having and this initiative that you have launched that I'm absolutely 1,000% behind is so good because it's enabling uh, the adults in the children's lives and the future workforce to um, to model a correct way of functioning at the work in work and at home as well. So it's, this is a, this is a longevity thing. This is not something that you're initiating. It's not just a little short term. This is a transformation. Oh, that's yeah, so so well put, and I appreciate that. And and that's exactly right. You know, who we are at work impacts who we are at home, and impacts our family and our friends. And look, the truth is, there used to be this idea in the past that. When you come to work, you check your personal baggage and experiences and stories at the door, and then you're who you are at work, and then you do the same thing when you leave work. And that's just not how human beings are built. If, if my son is sick or my daughter is ill, that is going to impact how I am at work. And if I have a really tough day at work or if I'm chronically in a very stressful situation at work, that will impact how I show up for my family and my friends and my community. But we can turn that into a strength. And so when we create the circumstances and the culture and the supports that allow people to thrive at work, it spills over into their relationships at home. And that is extraordinarily powerful. So that's why I think this is this is a what we've laid out as a framework for workplace well-being. But it's really a contribution to societal well-being, recognizing that 
workplaces are a powerful contributor to the mental health and well-being of communities. And I totally agree with you. Just reading through all the the points that you that you put in place, it just that's why I was, that's why I said what the comment before. This is not just for the worker. This is for the parent. This is for these. This is this is going to contribute to the societal change that we need. And that's one thing that's good that's come out of the pandemic is that people are questioning. They're not satisfied with how things were. People want the change, and this is a fantastic way. Um, so this initiative is just so important. So I always want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for what you're doing. I'm so pleased that you are our Surgeon General again and that you have this philosophy and that you're driving this focus because I think it's it's going to help us as individuals and as a society to get back to our humanity again, which is going to make a huge difference in our mental and physical health. Thank you. That is so kind of you to say. And I, I appreciate what you're doing about to have these conversations, to give voice to these topics around mental health. And I'll just say, you know, in closing, I do feel optimistic, you know, about the future because there hasn't been a time that I can remember in the last 30 years where we've talked this openly about mental health, where we've given ourselves an opportunity to examine how workplaces and schools and families can influence and impact mental health. So there's a special moment right now that we are living in. And my hope and the reason I feel urgency around this is I want us to jump through this window of opportunity to build the lives that all of us deserve, lives that are focused on our relationships, that support our overall mental health. I want us to design institutions, schools and workplaces and community organizations that recognize how powerful our mental health is and how it's the fuel for everything that we do in our lives and to figure out how they can contribute to that. If we do this, we can become a society of people who are truly fulfilled, who are guided by love and compassion, not by fear and by anger. There's a lot of fear and anger in the world right now. And it's not because people are bad people. It's in part, I think, because we've lost our connection with each other. I think it's in part because many of us have lost a connection with a sense of purpose. And I think it's also because we have, I think, moved too far away from the core values that we want to ground society in. Those values of compassion, kindness, and love, which I think are the foundation for any healthy society, any healthy family, any healthy individual. And that's what we have to get back toward. Wow, that was beautifully said. Thank you so much. It was incredible. And everyone I know has been touched by this conversation. And thank you for what you're doing. And if there's anything I can do to support what you're doing, I'm here I'm here to support. So thank you for spending this time with us. And thank you, thank you for this initiative. And thank you for your vision. I mean, it's, it's phenomenal. So needed. And we support you 100%. Well, thank you so much. I'm so glad we had this conversation. Oh, my. It's been amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dr. Murthy. And I look forward to connecting again sometime. And keep up the Me too. What you're doing. Thank you. So All right. Much. Take care then. I hope you found today's podcast interesting and helpful. If you want more tips and help with managing anxiety, depression, and mental health, be sure to visit my website at drleaf.com and to sign up for my weekly newsletter, where I also include a schedule of my speaking events and so much more. And follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Just look for Dr. Caroline Leaf. Also, I love seeing all your posts on social media about this podcast. I love seeing what resonates with you and what you've learned. So be sure to continue posting and tagging me and letting me know what you think and how these tips worked out for you. And don't forget, leave a review and keep spreading the word about this podcast. Thank you for joining me today. I really hope you learned something new and helpful. Till then, 
I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf. This podcast represents the opinions of myself and my guests. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for educational and informational purposes only. Please consult your healthcare professional for any individual medical questions you may have. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions or corrections of errors.